You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. As usual, I'm Nick Peters, your host, coming to you from our snowy studios right now in Boyden, Tennessee, which just simply comes right out of the office in my own house, and it looks like it's starting to melt here, and we're going to just go on with our show, as always, because snow doesn't stop us here, and today, my guest is Justin Langford. Now, Justin Langford, just like Talbot Anderson from last week, is someone that I met at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary Defend the Faith Conference 2015. So, when if you're liking all these guests here, then consider that encouragement that maybe you should go to the 2016 conference when it takes place. But who is Justin? Justin Langford is Assistant Professor of Christian Studies at Louisiana College in Pineville, Louisiana, where he teaches New Testament and Greek. He received a BA in Sociology from Louisiana College and the MDiv, THM, and PhD degrees from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Justin's areas of interest are the general epistles, hermeneutics, Koine Greek, and intertextuality. He is a member of the Evangelical Theological Society and the Society of Biblical Literature. Justin is married and has three small children. Other than teaching and spending time with his family, Justin enjoys music, football, and coffee. So, uh, Dr. Langford, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Yeah, we uh, we try to overlook the the interest in football and coffee here, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I'm sure Ali, my wife, is kind of twitching background because she's one who's a big football fan, and I'm not interested. I say, hey, the Super Bowl is a good time to get out a book and just start reading. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I'll try to convert you later. <laughs> uh, yeah, good luck on that one. Yeah. Anyway, now New Orleans was the first time I got to meet you, and this could be the first time people in my audience are getting to hear about you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get to be doing what you're doing? How did you become a follower of Christ? Okay, sure. Well, you know, from an early age, I grew up in a family that was very much involved in uh, in the church and ministry, and uh, heard heard the gospel proclaimed uh, early on. And so around the age of eight, uh, I made a, a profession you know, to follow Christ with my life and experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, since that time, as many of us in our, in our journey, our Christian walk, uh, experienced, you know, the ups and downs. But looking back as to how the Lord prepared me to be where I'm at now teaching, um, I had numerous opportunities growing up in, in, a, uh, in a Christian church to be involved in, in teaching and leading Bible studies and, and and then once I was in college at Louisiana College, which is where I teach now, having opportunities to uh, teach other students and especially youth, and working in the church as as just as not just a youth pastor, but also uh, ironically as a, as a music pastor uh, when I was a student in New Orleans, uh, getting to use those gifts in that way. But but I always felt this call to teach uh, that God had called me to teach in some capacity. Uh, I've had the opportunities to do that on both informal. 
and an uh, informal basis in the church, uh, but then now getting to uh, getting to use that calling uh, as a ministry to teach here at Louisiana College to, keep, to teach college students. And so that's kind of the short of it, uh, saved at an early age, um, experiencing that gift of, uh, of teaching and really wanting to, to use that gift uh, for, for ministry. And uh, upon graduation from New Orleans Seminary, I came here to Louisiana College in 2013. So I've, I've been here close to two years. And I tell you, it really is a, a very uh, neat experience and kind of surreal still to be teaching at uh, my alma mater. But uh, but it's great to see how the Lord has has led my family here and how we love this area and certainly love our, our students here at the college. Now, when you talked about being a youth pastor, before we jump into the subject of today, I would like to ask, did you use apologetics any as a youth pastor? You know, looking back on that, I didn't use it a whole lot mm-hmm. uh, because, honestly, my introduction to that was not until a little bit later um, being in seminary. But when I look back on some of what I did, uh, some of the approaches and maybe the materials that I used did kind of address some topics in that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but no formal training or study of that or even just personal reading really until um, I left uh, being a youth pastor when I was in seminary working as a music pastor um, and, and, you know, ironically, I think I did almost more teaching as a music minister than maybe as a youth pastor, uh, teaching adults and, and using some apologetic uh, materials and methods. Well, I asked about that because in my own talk, I said that we are having our youth be vastly unprepared for what lies ahead of them. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of curious if you had had any success in there because... I really don't think the, the kind of things we talk about are above the heads of our youth, and it's absolutely essential they learn this kind of information because we're going to encounter the opposition nowadays regardless. Even if you just stay at home, if you're surfing the Internet, you're going to find the opposition. That's right. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I certainly agree. Well, the topic we're talking about today is forgeries. Now, I have to ask, was any of this uh, just inspired by Bart Ehrman? <laughs> Uh, well, well, you know, when I was thinking of a of a talk to do there at the Defend the Faith conference this past year, uh, that was something that popped into my mind, and uh, certainly his book and my presentation that I that I delivered there was uh, partly in response to that, but also based on some other reading I had done as well. Mm-hmm. And so certainly he is an individual that comes to mind uh, when we think about maybe an opposing viewpoint that we need to be familiar with. So so yes, uh, he is in definitely in the background. Uh, when you think about this topic. Now, when we talk about forgeries, what exactly do we mean by forgery? Okay. Yeah, well, you know, by forgeries, now if you read Bart Ehrman's work, he is very careful in his language as to how he defines those. I think one thing that we, we all need to be mindful of at the outset is that when we hear that term forgery, for us, uh, it has a very negative connotation, and it should. And we think about forgeries today, um, and Aramon makes this case as well, that um, when we hear that word and the negative connotations, we think an activity that is illegal. Mm-hmm. But when you look at some of the evidence in the first century or in and around the first century, um, it seems that that, you know, by any means was not the case. This was something that was very common, and it was not really an illegal activity. But um, a forgery being something pinned uh, by an individual that was was not the person who actually uh, responsible for those thoughts or those or those items. Mm-hmm. Now, 
when you look at some of the terms, and this is kind of, I think, a really good place to begin, what kind of terms are we dealing with? Um, the way that Ehrman breaks this down, I guess I will start with his terminology and we can go from there, is that um, he first introduces the term pseudonymity, which is a fancy word for a false name, and that there is uh, there are you know two types of this, you know the innocent kind, uh, and then also the deceptive kind. But he would go on to break down the deceptive kind into pseudepigraphy, uh, something that's falsely attributed or ascribed to an author who did not write that work. And then this is where he says the the deceptive type of pseudepigraphy is what he calls a forgery, bringing up all those negative connotations um, that we might think of, maybe barring the illegal nature of that. And so I think he specifically designs a forgery as a writing that claims to be written by someone, especially a known figure, who did not in fact write that work. And now, so – Go on. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Yeah, and so you know, I think when we look at his terminology, um, I don't in particular have, have an issue with that. I think he is right on with the forgeries and, and the terms. Some people will use different terms. But I think forgery is, is a is a modern term that we're familiar with, and so um, that's that might be a good place to start. We don't encounter a word like pseudepigraphy uh, in in much of our, our our reading on the popular level, but mm-hmm. a forgery simply being a writing that claims to be written by somebody who did not in fact write that. Now, when we were talking about an innocent pseudonymity, we were talking about something like say a Mark Twain being a name for Samuel Clemens. It's the same guy; he's just writing under a different name. Yeah, that's correct. That's but, correct. Yeah. But if I sat down and wrote a book today and then signed it Mark Twain at the end, that would be the deceptive kind of forgery. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, also, uh, the Gospels and Acts and Hebrews, they wouldn't fall under this category of forgery, would they? Yeah. Yeah. You have an issue there, you know, with anonymity. You know, an item that was attributed to an author later on. You don't. It's it is very different. Um, it's not the same as someone sitting down and, and pinning this in someone else's name. You have an author who originally wrote that work who did not initially attach a name to it, mm-hmm. and so you have the early church uh, doing their their investigation and trying to determine who exactly wrote those. So yes, pseudonymity or forgeries being something a little bit different than um, some of those writings in the New Testament that would be anonymous. Now, you did say, though, that uh, forgery was not unheard of in the ancient world. We do have other examples of forgery. Could you give us some examples of forgeries in the ancient world outside of the New Testament? Oh, sure. Um, there are a, a plethora of these. Um, you've, you've got, um, well, I think one place I'll, I would like to start would be in the New Testament itself and kind of move out from there. Second uh, Thessalonians 2 talks about uh, this very issue where it seems – now, I'm going to say Paul because I believe Paul wrote wrote that letter. Mm-hmm. Ermon would not. But uh, where Paul is writing and alerting his readers to the fact that there is uh, there's this activity taking place that they need to be aware of and, and be on guard against. And so it does seem that even in the corpus of the New Testament literature – there is an idea that works like this are floating around. Mm -hmm. Now, when you move outside, you have uh, a document, the Muratorian Fragment, which is an early list in the second century of of our New Testament books uh, that indicates, you know, this as well. But 
when you think about some of the other uh, the other forgeries that take place, you have different types of documents, like gospels attributed to uh, to Peter. To um, you have uh, letters written in the names of Peter and Paul mm-hmm. and, and other major apostles. Apocalypses, basically any of the um, genres of of scripture in the New Testament, gospel, letter, apocalypse, uh, had names of the apostles attached to them, uh, but were probably attached. Uh, to deceive, and we can talk about this more in a little bit, but but maybe for different motives as well, and maybe mm-hmm. to simply deceive or to get an idea out that was not your own, uh, but they would see that name that was very familiar, um, and that maybe give some credence or some weight to what you were going to write. So you can almost attach any one of the names of the uh, early apostles and disciples to one of the genres, and there is a forgery out there that exists. And do we have any examples of forgery in the secular world at the time? Uh, yes, yes. You do have a bunch of examples there. Uh, and and I'll, I'll say this. One of the things that I do agree with Ehrman on, and one of the things that I actually like that he does in his, uh, in his book, uh, Forged, is he, he does provide the reader um, a bunch of evidence of examples of how this took place in the Christian world, uh, in the Jewish world, and then even beyond. So I do think he does give a good basis for seeing uh, this this understanding that pseudepigraphy or forgery was a very common activity, and and not just maybe among uh, Christian circles or Jewish circles, but but even abroad. And so that's one thing that I do like that he does. It's it's what he does with that evidence that I think is. Uh, Ironically, I think kind of deceptive uh, and being selective in the material that he chooses. Uh, so, yes, you do find examples of this outside of Christian and Jewish circles as well. We consider, for instance, that I know that some scholars in philosophy think that a number of the Platonic dialogues that we have aren't really from Plato. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you have uh, some issues there that would be earlier on. I think the time frame that I'm more familiar with in and around the first century um, with a, a background of Jewish literature, apocalypses and other uh, pseudepigraphic kind of writings, um, and then, of course, the period with the early church and the establishment of the canon and the fight for the canon, mm-hmm. uh, you have some other, other items pop up. So, um, so yeah, I'm not as familiar with, with some of the Platonic dialogues. But uh, but I am familiar with that concept that that's out there. I haven't seen the evidence, though. Now, when we talk about someone having a piece that's a forgery, now there is a difference between someone being a writer of a piece and someone being sort of behind the piece, mm-hmm. as it were. And I think this is something we need to stress, that that writing in the ancient world wasn't really just a one-person activity. It could involve a group of people, and normally it would be done through a scribe. And the person whose name on it, they could have been a major writer, but they could have just been an editor. They could have been the person who financed the writing. Uh, how, mm-hmm. how does that work with forgeries? Uh, yes, that, that is a position that's commonly mentioned. I think that is an important aspect of this, of this topic. Um, the best book out there, I think, on this um, is by Randy Richards. Mm-hmm. And um, you know his 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 book on Paul and first century letter writing, 
uh, it really opens our eyes to um, the lar- larger landscape, the broader landscape uh, of what it means when an author like Paul, for instance, would sit down and write a letter. There's so much more involved. And, and, and Nick, one of the things that I do here um, in my New Testament survey class at Louisiana College is um, I spend a lecture on uh, each genre of the New Testament, and I spend a, a whole class period on this very topic about you know how was a letter written in particular. And so we talk about the genre. We talk about Randy Richards' work. And it is important, I think, for us as, as church members, as lay people, to understand that um, when Paul says, you know, Paul and Sosthenes, you know, like with 1 Corinthians, or you have a guy like Tertius, you know, at the end of a letter saying that, that, uh, that I'm signing off and Paul's, you know, giving his attribution here as well, that um, that should clue us in to the fact that there could have been a whole company of folks around. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I love about what Randy Richards does is he helps us see that, yes, while Paul is, is labeled as the author, and I think rightly so, um, it seems that there was a missionary team. And we know that people are around him. We look at the book of Acts and we see how his ministry transpires. He's always around people. And so it makes perfect sense that he has a group of folks who are with him, even as he's writing these documents on his travels. And so now there is, you know, one, you know, a few different ways to, to understand this whole concept. But, you know, a secretary being involved, maybe helping polish the material, mm-hmm. or um, if it's a dictation type of context where Paul or Peter or whoever this is is dictating this letter, and some of the stylistic features can be explained maybe by um, a scribe. Um, you also have people mentioned in these letters that might have simply just been the letter carriers. And so it is important and very instructive for us to understand that there was a process involved um, and that, that, yes, while Paul might be behind this material, ultimately uh, he, he could have had some other folks assisting him in various ways. Now, if anyone's... Hearing the name of E. Randolph Richards and thing that sounds a little bit familiar, we interviewed him May 17th of last year on his book, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, which is, yes, another book that, that I really think that you should be reading. <laughs> and so now when we uh, return to the idea of forgeries, what we can ask is, uh, why does this topic really matter so much? Why is Barterman writing on a topic like this, and why do you think it's important to, to respond to me, what difference does it make? Okay. Yes, that's a great question. And uh, I'll start with this with this analogy. Um, one of the ways that I see Bart Ehrman, and, and I don't mean to bring up a lot of negative connotations, but here's what I think about. I think about Marcion, and I'm not saying Bart Ehrman is Marcion, but um, Marcion's role in the formation of the canon, you know, this early heretic, it was much of what he was doing and saying and writing that prompted the church and was really the catalyst uh, in many ways for the church in dealing with some of these authoritative documents that they were using in worship uh, and in their services. And so when I think about Bart Ehrman, uh, even though he does stand usually on the opposition, the opposing side of, of evangelical uh, viewpoints, um, we can be thankful for him in many ways because I think because of the fact that he's writing a lot of these these books to a lay audience, um, then the church is encountering this, you know, in just their regular bookstores that they go in. They're picking up these types of things, 
And so now the church is presented with these questions that are that are extremely important because they they deal with the issue of the trustworthiness of scripture or the the canon, you know, the books that we have. Um and then in particular with uh with his book Forged, uh he says in the introduction almost as a rhetorical uh emotional appeal to the reader, you know, if you're if you're like me and you're concerned with truth, uh, then you'll you'll enjoy this book essentially, and so you you've got a guy like Ehrman who is really bringing this this material that might not have ever been presented in a church in any any format down to a lay level. So it's forcing the church to deal with these issues. And so on one hand, I am very thankful for what he's doing because the church now has a um, uh, a very popular popular level uh, of of, of uh, type of literature that we can. Use as, as an example and really analyze these arguments. Mm-hmm. But he hits on it there in the introduction. He's dealing with the issue of truth, because if if like he believes there are forgeries in the New Testament, and there's deceit and lying involved, you know, does deception really line up or match up with the ethics of Scripture? You know, that teach um, you know be be free from falsehood. You know, speak truth. Um, and and to really be mindful of those things, and so I think this is a very very important topic, and so um, I'm glad these discussions are are coming more to the to the foreground of what we do even in the church, because we need to be dealing with these issues. We will encounter people who have read Ehrman's work, and who unknowingly are going to be very persuaded because they don't know some of the other viewpoints, and so uh, that's one thing I think. Uh, one reason I think that this issue is coming up is because it does deal with truth, and it deals with uh, the very essence of uh, the selection of the New Testament books. I've had this stance also, in fact, with looking at past issues we've had to deal with, such as for Da Vinci Code, and looking at issues we're dealing with today, like the new atheism. And essentially, all these people are doing, I think it's opening the doors of conversation, which is exactly what those of us in the Apologetics community have been seeing wanting to go on for some time. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, the tragedy, though, is that too many of our Christians are already falling away because the church hasn't done the job of preparing people in advance for when this stuff comes up. And then we suddenly have to give a crash course, and we're living in reactionary mode too often. Yes. Yeah, you know, you're exactly right. It's opening the door for conversation. And... um as the church, I mean, it's it's our responsibility. If if we haven't already addressed these topics, uh, this is the time to do it. And you know, it's our responsibility to uh, to handle those issues. And so, um, I think another thing that uh, that comes into the picture here is, um, and you'll recall this from my presentation at the seminary back in January. You know, if if we if we know scripture, if we really know scripture front and back, then we should be able to recognize um, documents or ideas or concepts uh, that that kind of put us off. You know, that kind of might mm-hmm. indicate that there's something uh, something something fishy going on. And uh, you know, if you recall from that presentation, I uh, I showed some slides where I had you guys uh, try to identify of uh, two texts that were side by side with no information as to where they were from, uh, which text was from Scripture and which text was, was not. And as you recall, that was a very difficult thing for most of the people in the room to do. Yeah, there were a few I didn't even get right. Uh, yeah. 
So, and that was purposeful. I was trying to select texts that were very close, but but also coming from a, di- a totally different source. But but you know, my point in that exercise was to highlight the fact that uh, if if we know scripture front and back, if we know what truth is, uh, then we could and should really be able to recognize some of these other false documents. And that's what the church was dealing with. But it's now what we need to be dealing with also. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Ehrman's approach to this topic um, is it should be welcome. Um, and yes, we should we should rightly counter, you know, with our own arguments. But um, I, I think I think what we're dealing with, Nick, here is more of a root issue of this um, disease, essentially, that's kind of plagued the church for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just, you know, biblical illiteracy. Yeah. We we need to do a better job in our in our churches of teaching mm-hmm. and uh, introducing people to these uh, to these issues. And I do appreciate what you said there at the beginning because these concepts, although they're addressed more often than not in an academic setting, are very applicable. I mean, mm-hmm. we can we can certainly communicate this uh, to a younger group or even a group that's more established in the church who is unfamiliar with this. And so I think it help it should help us deal with that root issue as well of really teaching people scripture and what scripture communicates about God and about Christ and so forth mm-hmm. now when we, we're looking at this kind of issue we've had Mike Lacona on the show twice we've had Gary Habermas on once and both of them use the minimal facts approach for defending the resurrection which relies on 1 Corinthians and Galatians and Ehrman, like most every ever single New Testament scholar out there in the world, no matter where they are on the spectrum, says, yes, both of those are Pauline. So we have unquestionable Pauline documents that we can use to defend the resurrection. So someone going to say, well, okay, we know Ehrman wrote seven of the epistles. There are six more that are disputed. I mean, is it really that big a deal to defend those epistles and any of our epistles? What what do we really gain? What's the purpose in it? Okay. Yes, another really good question. Um, I think what we're dealing with now, when you when you think about that, is is the concept of of canon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mentioned this in my presentation. The really the larger question here, uh, when you broaden away from the forgeries, is you know what happened in the process of the early church and the role of of God and the Holy Spirit and really helping solidify what the New Testament canon is, because it begins to bring into question what we've received. Can we trust it? Uh, Is it sufficient? And so forth. And so if one of the criteria for the early church in selecting the books to be considered as New Testament books was apostolicity, you know, or if it was written by an apostle or someone associated with an apostle, and you have a book or maybe you know, six books uh, of Paul that we do not want to attribute to Paul, uh, then we have some issues. We have some canonical issues. And so the implication there, first and foremost, is canon. You know, if we call those into question, uh, then what else did the church get wrong and so forth? I think the problems become uh, pretty numerous at that point. And I've already mentioned the whole uh, concept of deception and the ethics of Scripture um, then also you have an issue of uh, the, the chronology of early Christianity. You know, if these aren't by Paul and these are later in the second century and they're combating some form of Gnosticism or something to that effect, 
then you know how do we how do we compute this? I mean, how do we see the theology, the Christology, and, and other concepts um, working through the New Testament? How do we how do we relate these concepts? I think we have some problems there. Uh, and, and then finally, you know, the, the trustworthiness of Scripture. You know, the challenges that we find certainly uh, that come from our culture come from various directions, but this is one of those that, that challenges, I think, that, the trustworthiness of Scripture. And so when we call into question um, one book, you know, if not six or more of the New Testament, uh, then we have to start answering those those larger questions, the question of canon. And so I think what's at stake here is um, is, is very important. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to go back a little bit also to what you said about Learning to recognize the fear, as it were, of documents. One thought came to my mind immediately was years ago when I was looking into Mormonism a lot, because I lived in Charlotte and we were being visited by Mormons quite a bit, and I made it a point to read through the Mormon scriptures. And I even got a copy of Mormon Doctrine and read through it and highlighted a bunch of things. And when my uh, friends, my roommate at the time, referred to it then as the skeptics annotated Mormon doctrine, <laughs> even <laughs> at a uh, Mormon event that we went to at one of their churches, someone asked if they could look for my copy because they hadn't seen one. And as they were looking through it, we were thinking, okay, where is the nearest door so we can run if we have to? But when, <laughs> I, yeah, when I was reading through the Book of Mormon, I, I kept getting this idea when I was you know, I know that Joseph Smith is virus, and he's sure trying his best to make it look like scripture, but it just isn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about there? Um. Yeah. When you when you look at some of these uh, <clears throat> these documents that are uh, labeled that the church originally excluded. Yeah. In the process of the canon, um, you you have you can look at some of those and make some comparisons, and and, and you can usually see uh, based just based on a general knowledge of, of the New Testament uh, things that deviate maybe from teachings about Christ or who He was, um, or about the apostles, or about some aspect of of ethics, and that's the thing. You usually have a tinge of truth maybe there at some point, but I think you you can can usually suspect that there is something fishy going on, and you can recognize that. And I think the church, I mean, I would argue, I mean, that what happened with the process of the canon is that they effectively did exclude those books that um, that not only weren't written by apostles or folks associated with them, but those that weren't being, being used and widely read throughout the known world at that time. Uh, and then, of course, those that didn't conform to the rule of faith uh, that were deemed heretical to some extent. And so I think for them, if, if there was a tinge of falsehood or deceit or something to that effect, that those books were excluded. Now, having said that, when you look at some of these books that are called into question by Ehrman and others, um, you have, I think, varying degrees of, of weight that are placed on uh, the evidence. You know, we, we might have... Uh, less evidence or less confidence in a book like Second Peter or Jude for various reasons, mainly because a lot of the church fathers, fathers put it on one of those spurious or disputed lists or even rejected lists. Um, and so we have some questions about those, but those certainly those books did finally make it into the canon. 
Um, so when you look at the evidence, I think the church dealt with that. There was a point where they where they drew the line, and I would argue that books like Second Peter, Jude, um, the Pastorals were those that exhibited either certainly a conformity to the rule of faith, or in their estimation, they had the evidence that was weighty enough for them to make the decision that, that yes, this was written by Paul. And so this is an issue that that Ehrman highlights when he's talking about this deceit and falsehood. You know, why would we keep books like that in the New Testament? Now, of course, he's he's arguing that Paul didn't write the pastorals and other letters, so why should we, you know, continue to, to use those books in our in our context of worship? Now, he also starts at the other end um, of the spectrum. Let's call everything into question, and and then we'll prove it right if we get down that far down the road. And, you know, my argument uh, would be, uh, like others, is that let's let's start with what Scripture affirms, and if we have sufficient reason and weighty enough evidence to uh, to deem that work not by Paul or, or whoever the, the individual is, then we go that route. And so my view, though, is is that we just don't have weighty enough evidence uh, in many of those cases. Now we have varying degrees of evidence or, or, or amounts of evidence uh, depending on what we're looking at, uh, but but ultimately I think what Scripture affirms that we do find. And so it's either the New Testament has forgeries and thus it's um, uh, it, it's kind of deceitful because they're using uh, forms of lying and deceit to communicate uh, remembering and, and living out the truth, or you don't have forgery or pseudepigraphy attested in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think the middle ground is something that, that would be desirable, uh, and certainly that the early church uh, desired as well. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I've said when it comes to the question of canonicity, and which, by the way, if anyone's interested, it was August 23rd last year. We had Lee McDonald come on to talk about canonicity and the formation of a canon, that when people are coming in and asking me about all these Gnostic Gospels, such as these other Gospels, and say, why did these get included in the canon? That is my first thing I always go with, want to say to them is, have you read any of them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Some of those you can, you can tell pretty early on uh, that that there's something different about those works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's look into the works that are called into question. Now we have a seven epistles that Ehrman and most every other New Testament scholar in the world, say those on the fringe, would say are authentic. Could you tell us what those are? Yeah, the, you said the authentic ones? Yes. Okay. Yeah, the seven typically, you know, that that, that any scholar on either side of the, the spectrum would say are authentic to Paul would be Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, uh, Philemon, and then First Thessalonians. Mm-hmm. Now, how is it that uh, that we know that Paul wrote these letters? I mean, what what kinds of things are we looking for? Sure. Well, l- let me couch it in these terms. The other six that that they would say were not written by Paul, which would be Ephesians, Colossians, Second Thessalonians, and then the pastoral letters, First, uh, Second Timothy, and Titus. Mm-hmm. A, a major argument that is brought into the, the discussion here is one of, of style and vocabulary. Mm-hmm. So they would say that when you compare what Paul uh, what Paul does in, in, the, in the authentic seven as far as his style, his vocabulary, his sentence structure, and so forth, mm-hmm. that what we find in the other six 
are, are very different items as far as as far as style and and composition and then vocabulary. Most of what they argue uh, now you're looking at internal evidence. You're also looking at the external evidence, uh, the weighty evidence on the outside from church fathers and others uh, who would deem the other seven and as having no question, but mm-hmm. Most of these these folks who would say that you have some forgeries in the New Testament, those six in particular, they're going to argue that based on internal evidence. And so one of the things they'll look at is, you know, well, what kind of what kind of heresy is being uh, being being written about, being described? And so most of them would say, well, this is this sounds like something that's in the second century or at least later in the first century. Uh, Paul has already died. It can't be him. Uh, that would be one route they would go. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue with vocabulary and language is one that I think, in the end, is is fairly insignificant, even though it is one of the major ones that's brought up. And the reason for that is this: when you, um, well, they would argue that you have so many different words and phrases that are used in these disputed six that don't parallel anything else that Paul does. Uh, in his in the other seven, and so that must mean that uh, this is coming from someone uh, who who was not Paul. I mean, it, it doesn't reflect his mindset and the way that he thought. And there's been a lot of comparisons, very technical comparisons, looking at the percentage of words that are used and so forth, mm-hmm. uh, and the words that only occur one time in the New Testament. Well, what they fail to mention though is that when you look at the other seven, the authentic seven that everybody would agree on. You still have words that only occur one time or a handful of times in the New Testament. Um, yes, there are instances where Paul talks about salvation or the resurrection in different ways, uh, but those could be very well due to his audience and the word that they needed to hear. And so a lot of times I think you kind of go back, when you go back, uh, it, it doesn't really amount to much because what they argue for the for the pastorals or for Ephesians can very well just apply for Galatians. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the comparison is usually made between the two groups, the unauthentic and the authentic, whereas if you looked at some of the authentics uh, individually, you would see the same items popping up as for reasons they don't agree that Paul wrote the, the other six. And so most of the argumentation runs along internal grounds, looking at style and vocab and structure um, Another item would be uh, the type of church structure that is represented in the uh, the six disputed letters. Uh, most of them would say that this de- this reflects a development later than Paul's lifetime. Um, <clears throat> different words that are used as far as bishops and overseers and, and and so forth, and so that that's an issue that's brought up. But I mean, the church structure is is another one where Paul varies his terms. He uses some of these terms interchangeably. And um, even reflects, I think, some of the things that we see in his ministry that we find in the book of Acts. And so those are just some things that are brought up usually when you look at the disputed book, books versus the um, the authentic books. I think I've heard Bajok said that in some books there's not a focus on justification. I was said to be disputed. And Bajok is, if some of these people think, geez, you give the impression that if Paul was buying a grocery list for going to a store, you have to include justification on it for it to be authentically from him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's the beauty, I think, of what we find in the New Testament. And remembering the whole genre of a letter, 
uh, and that they're occasional. I mean, mm-hmm. if if the occasion for the audience was not an issue of justification, but sanctification or mm-hmm. or, or eschatology, then it makes sense that that's why Paul Paul is omitting justification language because it it doesn't pertain to their situation. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, oftentimes I think that is something as well that that's overlooked. I think something else we could include in this is that, for instance, with a pastoral, Paul is most likely writing this to one person, and one person that he's really close with to give him advice, and he's going to use different language. You know, I've said, if you read a blog post of mine, you could probably recognize the way I write after a while and get used to that, but if you have read, for instance, sort of a love letter I could write to Audi sometime. The writing mm-hmm. style is going to be a little bit different, and I'm probably going to use terms in that second letter that I wouldn't want to use in the first one. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> what, do you think that would also have an impact on whether or not a letter is authentic or not? Yeah, you know, especially, yes, when you're dealing with those that were written to individuals like uh, with Timothy, <clears throat> excuse me, Timothy and Titus. Mm-hmm. Um, that that I think certainly would be something to uh, to keep in mind, and um, you know when you think about this whole issue, I mean looking back at the early church, uh, I think it was fairly obvious that that they were uh, pretty uh, pretty fluent with dealing with this issue of recognizing uh, something that would would be a be a forgery, mm-hmm. and you, since you had this 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 phenomenon that was in existence in that time frame. Um, and a lot of these major figures like Dionysius, uh, Eusebius, and Jerome, and others, um, I think it was pretty clear that they – and they even used the same kind of criteria that we use today, style, vocabulary, mm-hmm. what's, being, what's being shared, what's being taught, and then uh, anachronisms. And so it, it's just how we deal you – know, how we deal with the evidence that, that varies sometimes from scholar to scholar and what, as far as what the early church uh, thought. And I think when you get down to to the root of the issue, if we base, you know, and if the early church based their decisions on the teachings of Scripture of those 27 that they finally included, then um, then pseudonymous works or forgeries uh, should be rejected. Mm-hmm. And so, um, mm-hmm. so this kind of leads to the camp. If you read some of the New Testament introductions, you will get a many times a very balanced approach as far as the arguments go. But then some of those discussions will just end by saying, um, well, you know, even though we have all this information, it's probably not a phenomenon that occurs in the New Testament because it doesn't match with the ethics of Scripture. And and that's that's obviously not where Ehrman where goes. Uh, he, his questions are, are, are too numerous to, to really even get to that point. And so uh, that's what I think we're dealing with here. Um, we are putting a lot uh, on on the canonical process, as I said a while back. And the early church, and if we are viewing this as something that uh, that, that the Spirit and that God had, had guided them to do and select these books, then we um, uh, we we have to have some trust and some faith in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, well, I think we do have the sufficient evidence that we need to affirm that many of these disputed books are, in fact, by the authors that uh, are to have been reportedly written by. So. When I hear skeptics today talking about how we now know that the New Testament was altered over time, we know that Mark's ending is known, we know that the woman caught in adultery wasn't part of the Gospel of John, we know about forgeries, 
and such. I, I, I'm so tempted to say to them many times, well, congratulations, you're about 1,800 years behind the times, man. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. And a lot of times, I think, it kind of reminds me of um, Dan Brown's work and, 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 and other modern uh, types of pieces of literature or even films where uh, it's because the public is hearing of this for the first time, it's as if it's a brand new thing and the church has been hiding it from us for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're exactly right. A lot of this information that we've been presented with has been in existence. We just haven't dealt with it as the church, and so it takes our people by surprise. And also, isn't there a story in early church history to show how seriously that forgeries were taken that Someone caught a, a bishop or a priest or something like that writing a Third Corinthians or some other epistle like that, trying to claim it was from Paul. And as soon as they found out that this was going on, that person lost their position immediately. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Uh, it was Third Corinthians, um, and this bishop was—he eventually confessed. He was disciplined. Uh, the later, the letter was not included. And then, yes, he had to resign um, in disgrace. And so, yeah, that, that I think is very telling of how the church viewed this. Um, you know, not just a little slap on the hand, but uh, you know, this person had to be, uh, had to be released. And, um, and so, unfortunately, for that individual, that took place. But it, it, it reveals to us the seriousness of how they, uh, how they viewed these documents. And when the early church was choosing its canon, it's my understanding they tried to err on the side of caution. In fact, if there was some major dispute, they were even more concerned about letting a certain book in the canon. Yes, that's right. I think one of the ways this has been worded is that uh, the tendency for them was to um, to exclude rather than, rather than include. And so, um, so yes, that's why I think you have that struggle with a lot of these books that were – uh, took a while for them to get accepted, like Second Peter, Jude, um, because you had so many questions that didn't ultimately cause them to to reject them. But for some of these others that are, are pretty blatant, uh, yeah, the tendency was to exclude and, like you said, to err on the side of caution. Well, when we're looking at these kinds of manuscripts, and you said that you think there's plenty of evidence that works like the past wars, and I take it Second Peter and Jude as well are not forgeries. And what kind of evidence are we looking for? I mean, one thing that I think we can start off with, for instance, is does what what does the, the, the manuscript say about itself? And mm-hmm. this is one I've I've found interesting because the gospels will often be rejected because they are supposedly anonymous, which is true. But it doesn't mean we don't have any idea who wrote them. And yet, then when we get to the pastors, they're not anonymous, and they're still rejected. Regardless, which leads me to think, yeah, I'm sure if the Gospel of Matthew had on it, the Gospel according to Matthew, right at the start, that everyone would suddenly say, oh, well, we accept this right now. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a great point. And one of the books I think about that that brings this issue up is is the book of Hebrews. You know, because early on in the early church, I mean, you had them thinking it's 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 Paul who's written this. And that's probably the ultimate reason why it was included, but... Now we have questions. Almost, I would say, every scholar today would say, "Well, maybe we really don't know who wrote Hebrews." Mm-hmm. And um, and yes, it did maybe circulate without this uh, ascription as to who the author was. But um, I think what that means for us is it, it it is an important 
subject, an important topic. We shouldn't be we shouldn't be content or wholly content by walking away from Hebrews saying, well, we don't really know who it is. If one of the major criteria for canonicity was, you know, was it written by an apostle or someone associated? Now, the major theories as to who the author was, usually it comes down to three, uh, Paul, um, Barnabas, or Luke. And um, actually, that, there's a lot of recent activity arguing that, that it could have been Luke. Now, either one of those individuals still fits in that criteria, um, but we shouldn't be content just walking away saying we don't really know, because I think in the end for the early church, the process of the canon, I mean, that was of utmost importance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're exactly right. We look at some of these books that really aren't questioned as much, like the Gospels, and um, it may be First John because you don't have the the uh, the introduction by the author there. Just what we have from our external evidence, and of course, you know, comparison with other works by John. Uh, but it is something that we need to be mindful of. And I think on the issue with Paul and some of these debated letters is. You have you do have a common thread at least in a handful of them. Uh, one item I've mentioned before is uh, these Pauline signatures that he puts uh, that he attaches to the end of these letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have um, something to the effect of you know I Paul am writing this in my own hand. Uh, and in Galatians he even says, look at the large letters I'm using as I write. Um, you find these kinds of comments by Paul at the end of these letters. In three of the undisputed Paul uh, Pauline's, First Corinthians, Galatians, and Philemon, um, and then you find it in two of the disputed Paulines. And the way that works sometimes is that the folks who would say that these these other two signatures are in uh, forgeries is that well they're just mimicking Paul's Paul's style. Uh, but um, it's very consistent with his approach, with his use of a secretary, um, and even some of the language that's, that's used in those contexts. And so that's something else I think is a common thread that runs through uh, is these Pauline signatures. But we do, as as believers and as as church members, we need to remember the fact that that all these books went through this process of being questioned and really being seriously examined by the church uh, and by others uh, in these early uh, first early centuries of the church. So while this is not new, I mean, and, and many of the many of the arguments are not uh, that brand new, uh, we still need to be familiar with this material. And, and I guess I guess at this point I'm kind of uh, launching back into the practical application side of this. Um, when we teach this information, uh, these are the things that we need to remind them of. And, and when they encounter something on uh, a television show or in a popular book by Ehrman or someone else, uh, not to be totally taken aback. Uh, but to do that hard work of of trying to uh, trying to research this topic and understanding, and so um, you know this is where you know leadership in churches and in other avenues and things that you're doing here with your blog is very very helpful uh, for the lay uh, lay community mm-hmm. in wrapping their minds around these issues. You know when you were talking about the uh, Pauline signature was at the end, Bart Ehrman in his book Forged talks about when it's Second Corinthians and says this is the exact same kind of thing a forger would do when they're writing a piece to try and make it authentic. And the response that can be, this is also what an authentic person would do if they thought forgeries <laughs> were going around of their works. Yes. Yes, that's right. You know, that's one of those points you can see the argument on, on either side. And that's where I think you, you've gotta you've gotta acknowledge that point. 
but then you've got to move beyond that and you know look at some of the other evidence but you're exactly right he he only he only admits that side of it and you know that's something that just thinking about a um any person on the pew approaching this book and reading this book Ermon in trying to present his position as as I guess the uh the authoritative or final position uh he is very selective in his uh his use of of evidence and of course illustrations um you know not being totally fair or balanced and which you know honestly I find kind of ironic in a book about forgeries now this he's not saying that this isn't you know this is written by Mark or, or Paul it's written by him but the way that he presents the information is is kind of deceptive um and, and it's it's very much a um a well-written rhetorical argument as to why his position might be right but yes he does omit some of those things when you when we look at the evidence that can be argued just the same the other way and so that's something i think the reader needs to be mindful of also yeah i'd like to warn the listener out there about the same thing i've noticed with bart Ehrman, is that he tends to give a sound of one hand clapping in any case can be persuasive if you ignore the best arguments against your position and that's something that I seem to find consistently happening. I mean, when mm-hmm. I picked up his book on Jesus, Apocalyptic Prophet of a New Millennium, now I'm an Orthodox preterist in my eschatology, so I was saying, mm-hmm. I'm going to make a prediction. Bart Ehrman is never once going to mention preterism in this book. And I read <laughs> the whole book, and I found out I was right at the end. Not once <laughs> was it mentioned. And with his latest book, How Jesus Became God... What I found was he goes through and he gives a brief argument against miracles. Never once mentions Craig Keener's massive two-volume work on miracles, and he he has a couple of references to Larry Hurtado. Never mentions his long, long re- books on the topic of early Christian worship of Jesus. Not mm-hmm. once does he respond to Richard Balcom, who would be his biggest critic in this area. And so what he's doing is he's presenting one side to the church and to the skeptics out there who are buying up everything he says. As, as I said, I, I made a meme short before it came out. I said, brace yourselves. Atheists <laughs> are about to become experts in Christology. And, that, and what it, it's saying is that a, a lot of atheists, unfortunately, would just read Ehrman's work and they won't know that there are responses to this that have even been written beforehand, which also with his latest book, if anyone's interested, back in uh, on March 9th of last year, we, on March 29th, we did have a roundtable discussion with Michael Bird, Chris Turing, and Charles here on their book, How God Became Jesus, which was a response to it. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, you're, you're, you're exactly right. It's, mm-hmm. it's a one-sided argument for the most part, and what that reminds me of, though, is is what we as the church need to be careful of is that many times, I know this was the case for me uh, growing up, we're we're only presented with one side, mm-hmm. and we're only presented with our side. Right. And, you know, the whole goal of apologetics, I mean, we, we do need to know our side. We, of course, need to know the opposing side. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we've, we've done our, our church congregations and our church members a disservice with, you know, this training of, of uh, tra- trying to train them and why we believe what what our position is, and so that when we encounter these other positions from the opposite direction, we mm-hmm. don't know 
do. And so we're, we're kind of impotent in a sense, and, and all we can argue is our side. Usually our opposition can argue our side as well as theirs. Right. And so we, we've got we've to make a change. We've got to be better about addressing these things. Yeah, I've always told people that if you're going to go out there and argue against a side, you should also know how to argue for that very side. And sometimes I can tell the kind of skeptic I'm dealing with if I raise a point and I say, I know what an informed skeptic should say in response to this. And they don't say it. Like, yeah, I know what's going on here. And I've also looked through numerous apologetics books on our side and such. And if I go through and I see a bibliography that is not interacting with the other side, then I would say, this is not a book that you need to read because it does not argue sufficiently with the best opposition that's out there on the other side. So, I mean, it's not that I'd, I'm going after just Bart Ehrman for doing this. I'd go after Christians for doing this kind of thing, too. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. And we need, to, we need to be sure that the way that we're approaching this, you know, is in a... Um, in a very careful way, in a very compassionate way, mm-hmm. and uh, th- there's just a lot we have to do, I think, yep. to work back into that into that kind of approach. Yeah, I'd like to get then into how we do know what is real, but before leaping into that big area here, I'm going to go a little bit early and let everyone know that this week uh, you're listening to Dr. Justin Langford talking about forgeries in the New Testament. But if you're here next week, we got another treat for you. Again, I'm I'm having one of my favorite guests come back on, and that's Dr. John Wharton from Wheaton. He's got a new book coming out, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, the sequel to The Lost World of Genesis One. Which, as if you're if you're a reader of a blog, you know I'm a big fan of that book and its approach. And I have received and read an advanced copy of The Lost World of Adam and Eve. I've a review of it. And John Barton is going to be here next week, and we are going to be talking about that book and discussing questions and oppositions to it. So if you want to know a good view on Adam and Eve, come back next week to hear John Barton speak. Well, now we're getting back to talking with uh, Justin Langford about forgeries in the New Testament. Okay, so we've talked about a little bit about internal evidence. What is some other internal evidence you would be looking for to decide if a work is authentic or not? <coughs> Okay. Uh, yes, I think we've discussed some about vocabulary and mm-hmm. um, and style. Um, theology uh, is another one I've mentioned before with with Paul and and his 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 uh, his teachings on whether it's justification or sanctification or um, or the end times and so forth. Um, you're also going to look at um, one thing that both sides really need to be looking at is anachronisms. Mm-hmm. You know, inconsistencies in chronology. Uh, and, and trying to make sure everything matches up as far as chronology goes. Um, and then, of course, with Scripture as a whole, just the type of instruction that's being given uh, and, and conforming to orthodoxy, to conforming to the teachings of Christ. You know, if, if Paul says in Galatians that what he passed on to that, to that congregation was revealed to him by Christ, um, and he appeals maybe to his Damascus Road experience, and he's familiar with the um, the creeds and the teachings of some of the early apostles, then uh, those kinds of items, um, uh, what we could do is if we were arguing against uh, someone on the opposing side, you know, take some of the information that we find, some of the evidence that we find in the seven undisputed Paulines. Um, you've got a um, a really good 
uh, creedal formula, you know, of uh, early creedal formula in 1 Corinthians 15, the early part of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the, the Christ hymn. Take, take items like that and, and, and take that language, those teachings, those ethical comments, and, and demonstrate how we have, you know, these multiple connections with some of these other uh, documents as well. Uh, so I guess those would be, you know, some other ways that we can argue internally. Um, another item would be would be names. You know, who does he mention and where are they when he mentions them? Now, this is something where what's really helpful is is Luke's Luke's book um, on, on the Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, the early church. Um, now, the problem there in using that is if you encounter a moderate to liberal scholar, depending on however they define that word or that phrase then uh, a lot of them would say, well, we can't really trust Acts. It's not a very <clears throat> uh, accurate picture historically. But if we do use Acts, uh, we do, uh, and, and I would say that there's a ton of information out there that would say that Acts is historical, that we have a good chronology there, that it's authentic. Um, I recall back to the, the conference and Tim McGrew's presentation mm-hmm. uh, has some great information on that. But um, if we can get the other person to at least concede some of that, then we can use the book of Acts and some of the internal information there about where Paul was and who is with him uh, to connect some of these dots that we find in some of the other disputed Paulines. I think that can be a helpful approach, again, if they're willing to go with you on the um, uh, the accuracy and the trustworthiness of Acts. And so those, those would be, I guess, a few other items um, to uh, to bring up into the conversation in addition to language, style, vocab, theology, and so forth. Since Tim McGrew on Acts was mentioned, tell me one that I'm quite sure if you contacted Tim McGrew and asked for his information on Acts and any books he might recommend, it, you will get more than enough back from Tim McGrew <laughs> that you need. You go to him and say, hey, do you know any old books? You better be prepared to have about oh, seven or eight thrown your way so you can get equipped with that. And also, when he was there, I heard him talking to some other people who were attending, and the topic came up of Craig Keener's commentaries on Acts, which mm-hmm. I've got the first three here, and y- you could cure someone with one of these if he just threw in it hard enough. <laughs> They're that big. And, I mean, each one is about a thousand pages long. Mm-hmm. And three volumes so far, so far, far in. In fact, the bibliography, I think, is going to be coming out on CD. And Tim McGrew told me that he'd been talking with Craig Keener about it and about how the company that published it was even complaining because it was so massively long. And even Tim McGrew said he raised his eyes and said, that is rather long, when he heard how long (laughs) it was. And if Tim McGrew says it's a long book, you know it has to be a long book. (laughs) And he says that uh, Craig Keener just smiled he had he had a face on him, he said, that was probably very close to what Stephen looked like when he was getting stoned before him. And <laughs> he just said, God has just given us so much evidence. <laughs> yeah, I tell you, it is not for – we are not, as, as evangelicals, we are not uh, – the problem is not a lack of information or a lack of evidence and a lack of good research because mm-hmm. just with those two guys that we've been discussing, Tim McGrew and – Craig Keener. There's mm-hmm. so much that they have done. And, you know, I, I tell you, Craig Keener is just somebody that 
you know, he exudes uh, just humility, mm-hmm. um, and he's very, he's a very careful scholar, very careful researcher, and uh, and so those are those are great resources. Uh, that, that you guys can tap into, uh, just a, a wealth of information that supports really everything that we've yeah. been discussing here. Yeah. Now, if anyone's interested, also Craig Keener was on our show back in 2013 talking about miracles, his book. And on July 20th of 2013, we had Tim McGrew come on giving a general talk about apologetics, which also included information on the authorship of the Gospels, which. Um, that can take us somewhere else as well. I'm going to save that for later on. But when you were talking about the way that we look at this and you see the names used and theology and such, I mean, someone like Bart Ehrman could just say, well, what would you expect for, from a clever forger? That's the kind of thing that they're going to do. Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. That would be that would be a response. <clears throat> um. But I think what we find when we look at some of these letters is whoever – if that was the tactic of a person who was writing these letters, um, and then even though like in Ephesians and possibly Colossians, we might have some items of theology that could be connected with items later on, uh, you still have an, a very early understanding of uh, whether it's uh, – now, in those two particular, maybe not so, not necessarily church structure – uh, but items of um, external evidence, I think, are, are really helpful for these, mm-hmm. which I guess sometimes is discounted depending on who the source is. Um, but internally, I, you know, I recognize that we do have some issues. You know, you have the issue with Ephesians, um, Ephesians one one. Um, who was this written to? Uh, it's not necessarily a question of authorship there, but I guess who was this written to? It's very impersonal compared to some of Paul's other letters. Maybe that. Maybe that's a, a red flag for us. Mm-hmm. But um, I find it very interesting that even Marcion considered Ephesians to be authentic to Paul. It's one of those books that early on uh, in the history of the church and of heresy that was accepted in both circles, orthodox and heretical circles, even by Marcion. A lot of what – what I'll say here, Nick, which could be helpful for our audience is that a lot of this information that's been presented – it, some of it is is going to be things and items that were not challenged really until like the 18th century or so. Right. And new methods and new types of study and research um, popping up as a result of the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason. And so it's like they're um, addressing these issues afresh and uh, using maybe newer methodologies and approaches. So some of this, uh, some of this comparison and some of this research – uh, was really not challenged until later on in the history of the church. Now, that's not to say that maybe some of the early church fathers got some things wrong uh, on some other items, uh, but uh, as to you know, maybe case in point, Hebrews, I mean, we don't know for sure you know, if it was Paul or if it was someone else, but the, the sheer fact that this was not questioned for um, you know, 16, 1,700 years, um, I think should give us uh, a bit of an inclination as to as to you know why why these things are being challenged now, or at least relatively recently in the in the span of history, um, yeah. and so I think we do have a lot we can work with. Yeah, since you brought up Ephesians, that's a go ahead and deal with one thing that uh, people use as an argument against the authenticity of Ephesians, and that's that Paul does open that with a long, long 
sentence that I understand in Greek, and I'm sure you can say more about this to me, is really terrible grammar because it just runs on so much, and you'll say, this isn't the normal Pauline style. Yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah, that first uh, Ephesians one three to fourteen, you have this a uh, very similar thing happening happening in Colossians at the beginning of Colossians. Um, <laughs> in fact, my uh, Greek students who translate we translate through that passage in Colossians, and um, they always are just really distraught when we get to class to discuss the translation because if you don't recognize what the main verb is and understand that the other the other uh, verbal forms are all connected to it. Then yes, in English it's a, it's a run-on sentence. It's it's improper grammar, um, but we do find that from time to time in Paul. So it's not totally foreign. Um, it's a very a very uh, small facet, I guess, of of how he use, uses uh, his language to describe the thought. But with you know with a book like Ephesians, one of the issues that they bring up is that in other letters he'll use the phrase in the heavens. For example, and in Ephesians, it's going to be uh, in the heavenlies. It's a very different way. Uh, well, not a very different way. It's a somewhat different way uh, of saying that, using a slight variation of that word. Does that mean conclusively that Paul didn't write this book? I don't think so. Uh, but additionally, um, you can look at Ephesians and Colossians, or just read through them, even in English, and discern that there are some some stark similarities between those two books. And so, like the synoptics and like Second Peter and Jude, we have what might seem like a lot of dependence, literary dependence. And so, this argument can run, you know, a couple of different ways. Well, either this was Paul writing these letters uh, to two congregations who were dealing with similar issues, or this is a very clever forger you know who, uh, who who's writing whichever one came first let's say he's writing colossians um and and he's wanting to use ephesians he's going to mimic some of that style and structure however um i if i'm not mistaken i think the person who argued this point i'm about to make uh i think it's i think it was terry wilder um he's written a few articles and has some chapters and some books uh, apologetic books about this issue of forgeries uh, but i believe it's him who says that yes, we have some literary dependence, but when you look at the the actual words and phrases that are used, the most extensive point of contact is actually in the fact of of Paul commending Tychicus, a personal reference. And to me, like like Terry and others, I find that very alarming. Um, that that's the point, the the most extensive point of contact, a personal commendation. Uh, if it was a forger, you would, you might think their most extensive point of contact would be, uh, you know, a, a big chunk of verses. And I'm not just talking about general structure, uh, but but actual content. And so um, I think that's a point that we can argue in favor of uh, of Paul writing one of these or both of these really both of these letters that are typically questioned. Mm -hmm. Now. You had said something about external evidence, and that's what I was saying about with Tim McGrew and the Gospels, because when we look at the Gospels, they don't have the names in there. The idea of who we get them from comes from external evidence, and in fact, I understand this is also the only way we know who wrote the letters of the, the biographies of Plutarch, because Plutarch doesn't name himself, from what I understand, that 
we know that from external references. So what external references do we have on the epistles of Paul or Peter or anyone else that's disputed? Sure. Yeah, you, you have information from some of the church fathers. You can think in particular about Eusebius uh, and some of the lists that he provides. Um, you can um, look at the Muratorian fragment and the items that are mentioned there. I, I uh, A few, well, let's see, I thought I had some quotes here I would, I would share with you. Um, the Muratorian fragment, and this is one that, I guess deals directly maybe with the issue of forgery, but you know one section in that that document says there's there's an epistle to the Laodiceans and another one to the Alexandrians that are both forged in Paul's name to further the heresy of Marcion uh, and several others which cannot be received into the Catholic Church for it's not fitting that gall be mixed with honey. Now even though that's talking about a warning against some of these letters, we do see that in the Muratorian fragment this list of Pauline letters. Comparing these two, Laodiceans and Alexandrians, to the others that are listed, uh, so that would be an external, you know, physical artifact that we can uh, that we can actually um, we can actually look at. Um, you have other other items. Eusebius talks about you know we're receiving letters uh, on behalf of Peter and other apostles, but there are others that falsely bear their names, and so we reject those because we understand some of the background issues that they weren't handed down to us. Um, Origen, um, Jerome, um, some of these earlier early church fathers uh, give us a good bit of ind indication. Um, and then, of course, ultimately with the closing of the canon, uh, the final list that we're given, and that's later, I guess it's in the 300s, but <clears throat> excuse me. Um, we, we do have a good bit of external evidence that we look at, just like we would, uh, as you said, with the Gospels you know, that, that, that were anonymous. And the work that the church fathers, uh, the church fathers did with those. And if we take into consideration that the early church knew how to detect forgeries, and these books were on their list, whether they they fluctuated back and forth from a disputed category to an accepted category or not, the fact that they remained on that list and were not taken off, I think, is is telling for us as well. But someone could could reply with this, and one of the first things I might say is. Well, sure, you can go to the church fathers, but we all know they were biased. Why should we trust them? <laughs> yes, that's true, uh, and, and rightly so. And I think what, what we have to remember is that part of the canonical process is, in many ways, they're responding to you know, this context of heresy. And so if, if that's the case, then, then, then yeah, I don't think we need to downplay that bias. Uh, that they're actually dealing with those those letters that conform to the rule of faith. And so with that heretical context there, um, it makes sense that their bias towards Orthodox Christian faith, teachings of Christ, um, and of course the individuals who were followers of him and, and were knowledgeable of him, um, I would think we need, to, we need to put a lot of stock in that bias uh, and, and the guidance of the Spirit in this process as they sought these books out. So, yes, on one hand, I would, I would acknowledge that, and I wouldn't downplay that, that they did have that bias. Uh, but is that, you know, a, a wholesale reason for us to, uh, to throw out their information? Um, I think when we, when we look at the evidence that we, that we have and, um, and just the, the practices that were taking place and the fact that they could readily identify some of these things, 
I think we do need to, on one hand, have, have to have a lot of faith, I guess, in the process that they went through. And, uh, and so anyway, yes, I would acknowledge that bias, and, uh, but try to move on past that and, and show some evidence from that point on. Yeah, one of the things I often say to people is bias, a lot of times, can just be an excuse to avoid dealing with the data. I, mean, mm-hmm. I remember presenting Michael Lacona's book to someone on Resurrectionist and Rachel Reed said, well, look, he teaches at such and such university and he has such and such belief. I mean, don't you think he has a bias? Yeah, of course he does. Everyone who writes on a topic has a bias. If you're looking for an unbiased opinion, you're not going to find one. That's right. Now, mm-hmm. another objection that could be raised, you brought up Eusebius, and someone could say, well, Eusebius is 4th century, though. Why should we trust a 4th century writer on the opinion of who wrote a 1st century work? They weren't there. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yes, and, and what we have to acknowledge there, I think, is um, Eusebius, uh, e- even though we might want to question sometimes some of the, the items that he passes down to us when we look at authorship and things of that nature, we do we do look and see who he's getting his line of information from, and uh, the, if he's honest in the way that he's reporting his material, uh, we have good reason to, to really trust some of the sources that he's using. Because we have to remember, he, he's an historian, and he is trying to do his research. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we also have to remember the context of the first few centuries, um, and especially the writing of the New Testament in the first century. And that's where, you know, where, we're com- where we're coming from in our day, uh, being a print-based, internet-based culture. Uh, their culture, uh, really up until the first, second century, is primarily an oral culture. You know, until these documents were actually written down and circulated, and so, in my mind, uh, this this could afford the opportunity for someone to to talk about the um, the issue of textual criticism. You know how how we can trust the the uh, the text and the scripture that we have today, uh, and some of the background issues related to that. So I think also keeping in mind the uh, the background of their culture uh, that that. It's not like when you sit down to write a research paper today or do do some research where you can access anything you want to online or uh, numerous volumes, print volumes in a library. Um, that was just not the case uh, in the first few centuries. Mm-hmm. So Eusebius in recording his information, yes, we acknowledge he had a bias, uh, but also the, coming from his context and trying to document this was probably a pretty difficult task. Uh, but we, we do know he had pretty reputable sources uh, it, it's very similar to what Luke is doing when he's composing his gospel. I mean, he tells us in the beginning that other people have set out to write these accounts, so there were probably other gospel accounts floating around, uh, but he is now compiling his based on some of that information. And so um, so I think when we remember the context of the first few centuries, it should help us uh, as well, which is, which is related to the point about forgeries, um, the way that they were viewed back then and the way that they're viewed today. Not an illegal activity, but surely something that was frowned upon. Um, and then, of course, the uh, ramifications that has for uh, for us as the church and the books that were ultimately included. So, I think that is a valid question on Eusebius and um, his reporting of history. Uh, but at the same time, you know, bias considered and uh, the sources considered, uh, using his information in conjunction with other. Um, historical documents like other fragments and other early lists of the New Testament canon I think is pretty instructive. Yeah, I, I think some of that I would usually bring up when 
skeptics speak as they can say, well, so-and-so in the Gospels, they don't cite their sources. I'm saying, well, that's not the exact same way citation was done in the ancient world. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, it's, it, you know, I talk to my students all the time about this in the survey class. Um, you know, there, there, there's a heavy penalty, if not, you know, being kicked out of the institution if you uh, blatantly, you know, plagiarize, you know, on a number of occasions. That is an issue for us today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it wasn't so much an issue for them then. And so that's an important consideration as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the reporting of material and the citing of sources uh, was a very different process than we um, than we would expect and than we're used to, I guess, today. Well, I'd like to remind everyone at this point that you are listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and there have been some changes since last week. We've actually incorporated the blog into the website. So if you've been going to deeperwaters.wordpress.com, you could find that you've been told... You need to go to our new site, which is at deeperwaters.ddns.net, and there you've got everything there that was at the old site, and we're working on improving it every day. And if you go there, and I'm there right now, in fact, you can find on the left side there is the the uh, help support for work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And as I say, the best way to donate to me is through the work of Risen Jesus which is a ministry of Mike and Debbie Lacona. Please consider becoming a monthly supporter of Deeper Waters, and a link to make a donation can be found here. And if you click there, yes, you will be taken to Risen Jesus. You have gone to the right place. You just make your donation there, and then when you're done, you contact me or Debbie Lacona and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And they will make sure that you get it. And if you send it to me, I'll pass it on to Debbie. If you send it to Debbie, she'll get the message, and she'll make sure that I get a donation. And it will be tax deductible, and I will get every penny that you donate to me. And we would so much appreciate that. I mean, to keep this work going, that is the kind of thing we need. And then there's a way you can support us through Amazon. We've got an e-store there. You can go, and you can purchase books that you have heard about on the podcast or other books that I recommend. And if you purchase those books, I'll get a small amount of a purchase price. So, look, if you're going to purchase these books anyway, why not do it through Deeper Waters? Help us out a little bit. And then, also, I've written my own e-books. One of the most recent ones is The Creed for the Ages, A Look at the Apostles' Creed. And how it applies to Christians today, I highly encourage you to get that one. And of course, there's still the classic one that I co-wrote with my ministry partner, J.P. Holding, uh, Defining Inerrancy, which is a look at inerrancy, why it matters. And I'll look at contextual inerrancy, why we support that view instead of a more traditional view. And it's a defense of Mike Lacona as where the charges have been brought against him. Now, Dr. Langford, do you have any organization that you'd like people to support? Uh, you know, Nick, not, not offhand. I mean, nothing comes to mind. Um, I mean, uh, nothing in particular, I guess, to, to mention at this point. So I, I appreciate you asking, though. Okay. Well, let's get into the forgeries again here. And let's start with Second Peter, because this is usually a big one. 
as used because it seems so different from the regular style we say of Peter. I think the Greek is supposed to be really different and then me and he in the third chapter it makes it sound like it's been a long time since the teachings of the apostles and then this book was really heavily disputed by the early church so why should we think Second Peter was from Peter? Uh, yeah sure yeah, you're right. This this book did um, have a tough struggle uh, in the canonical process. Um, the historical information on it is is um, is not as weighty or not as as prominent maybe as some of these other other books. Uh, Eusebius listed this one as disputed on his uh, on his reckoning of how he how he listed all the New Testament books. The first citation really of this book. Is is by origin in the third century, uh, but but you even have um, so obviously you can see how he viewed it. Jerome regarded Second Peter as authentic, so some of the major church fathers uh, did uh, did see the weight and the value of, of Second Peter, um, but it wasn't recognized as canonical till later on down the road in the late fourth century. Um, and I think some of the reasons for this is they look at the differences between Second Peter and First Peter. Uh, yes, when you look at the Greek, the Greek is very different. The Greek in First Peter is very polished. It's a high literary style of document. Second um, Peter is a lot more choppy. Uh, it's it's the syntax of the sentences is 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 very different than the syntax of the sentences in First Peter. Um, and, and honestly, Peter was a name that was used frequently. Uh, in, in some of these various uh, forged documents, and so it was a very you know, it makes sense why I guess it was uh, was accepted much later down the road because Peter was a was a pillar of the early church. Um, if you, if you want to write a forgery and gain a good hearing, you'll use Peter's name or Paul's name. And so, uh, because of that reason, I think you see the the early church's hesitancy to accept Second Peter as as an authentic uh, authentic document. And it's also one of those that even though it was accepted later in the fourth century. Uh, it was really unchallenged until the Reformation. Uh, but some of the reasons I think we can argue for uh, for this, besides some of those some of those points of the external evidence, is that uh, that when you look, as I mentioned earlier, the the ascription, the, um, the the mention of the author as Simon Peter. You know, I would say let's start there. Let's assume that that's who that is. And as we work through the material, if we find sufficient and weighty enough reasons, then then we uh, then we go the, to the other direction. But you have some personal allusions um, in chapter one to the life of Peter, um, which is very similar to what we find in First Peter. Now, uh, I guess an important point to note here is that uh, Ermon and some others would also say First Peter is not written by Peter. It's, it, it's also uh, a forgery. But uh, you have these personal allusions. You found some of those in First Peter. You have some here in Second Peter. Um, you've got the chronology with the second letter that's mentioned in chapter 3, verse 1. You know, he says, this is now my second letter that I've written to you. Um, one explanation that, that commonly has been brought up is, is the issue of a scribe. You know, mm-hmm. if a scribe was involved in the writing of First Peter, if the individual he names at the end of First Peter in chapter 5, uh, Silvanus, was the scribe for First Peter, then maybe that helps us uh, explain why First Peter is just so much different as far as the language and the grammar and the style goes uh, when you compare it to Second Peter. Um, now, 
Ehrman uh, rightly brings up the point on First Peter that, um, and I think it was Karen Jobes in her commentary on First Peter in the Baker Exegetical series, who has an excursus about this at the end of her book. But when you see the the phrase in the ancient literature that this was written through somebody, uh, so in First Peter, I've written through Sylvanus, that most of the time that's that's actually talking about the letter carrier. So if we if we take that into consideration and we agree with Ehrman on that, then we have to rethink our our scribal uh, theory on First Peter, that uh, that Sylvanus maybe wasn't a scribe; he was a letter carrier. So some have pr- proposed that Second Peter is the result of uh, is the result of, of a scribe, whereas First Peter was written by Peter. Um, the other item that comes into play for Second Peter is in chapter three. The author mentions. A, uh, a group of Paul's writings. Uh, he talks about a plural uh, grouping of Paul's letters. And um, this is where I think uh, Randy Richards in his book does uh, acknowledge that you know that sufficient time probably would have passed for Paul to have multiple letters and for those letters to have been circulated to, um, to Peter and others who were around, if this is by Peter and if Peter has not yet been martyred in the 60s. Um, Another issue that comes up with Second Peter is the issue of genre. You know, Second Peter is an epistle. That's one thing, but I think it's Richard Balkum who argues that you know this is a testament type of genre, and by nature, a testament genre was written after this this person's lifetime. It could have been attributed to Peter, but it was written by his disciples because it very much reflects a last will and testament uh, kind of document. And so, you know, did Peter deliberately employ this kind of this kind of method as a last will and testament, or was this written by some forgers, uh, forgers in the you know late first century, early second century? Yep. So you you have a lot you have a lot of, of information to work with. You've got some positive external evidence. I think you do have some positive uh, internal evidence as well. I mean, I, I will acknowledge that the Greek issue is something that is very important mm-hmm. and um, it's something that Ehrman in his book uh, in Forged uh, kind of makes light of when he's talking about First Peter I always I sit back and I kind of chuckle at this too because I can see Ehrman chuckling <laughs> as he's writing it but he, he says he goes through this whole process about how Peter you know is, is it really plausible that after Jesus's resurrection that he went and got an education uh, because it's it's pretty clear that he was uh, he was a peasant, and that he was a fisherman, and that he probably didn't know Greek and probably couldn't even write. And so um, he kind of jokes about this issue. Uh, but you think about the time that has passed. If this is being written in the 60s, if we're going to argue uh, Peter being the author, then uh, I think it's actually – you can pose the question back at Ehrman. Well, is it plausible that he didn't get this education or, or that he could have? And he says it's, it's – um, it's possible, but it's not plausible, I think is the language that he uses. And so I think that can be, um, uh, can, can be noted and can be, can be reasoned with. And so, you know, Second Peter, naturally, I think the other issue that comes up is its relationship to Jude, because you have so much information that's being, um, uh, that's being shared among, uh, between those two letters. And I think when we want to maybe argue for, for Second Peter here as being authentic to Peter, uh, and its deviance as far as um, 
style, language, and content from First Peter mm-hmm. is, you know, if Second Peter and Jude and their authors are using a document that, that writes about and warns about heresy, which is the issue for Second Peter and Jude, uh, then, it, then it would make perfect sense why we see some deviation in language, in style, and even in content. Because if Second Peter is written so closely uh, uh, historically after First Peter, it seems very odd that he would change up his language and change up his content. But if we understand that an epistle is an occasional document, uh, then it does make sense that if he's writing to this issue of heresy that's just crept in secretly and maybe even uh, maybe even swiftly for for for, uh, for, for Jude at least, uh, but but slipped in secretly. Then, uh, then that would help explain, I guess, some of the differences between Second Peter and First Peter, and then I would think would push us maybe in a closer direction of saying that you know maybe this is this is Simon Peter as the as the letter portrays him to be. Well, what I was thinking also, you talking about him talking about the Pauline letters and have them being circulated times that Peter had an itinerant ministry as well as we know from First Corinthians. So could it be that say Corinth gets a letter from Paul? And they're talking about it. And then, lo and behold, here comes Peter preaching the gospel. And they can say, hey, uh, Peter, you want to look over this letter and see what you think of it? And mm-hmm. Peter could just become familiar with Paul's writings that way. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There are so many different ways how that could have transpired. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's it's perfectly um, adequate to say that, that, that this collection, uh, however many letters that was, uh, could have been in existence in that time. And... and you know, it's a very similar issue to the um, the transmission of the teachings of Christ uh, in the Gospels. You know, um, had sufficient time uh, been given to the oral period, uh, enough to where this could have been transmitted and then written in the Gospels. And, and you have you have individuals like James Dunn and others who who, who devote a lot of their work and their time to this. Mm-hmm. But it's a very similar thing here with with Peter and Paul's relationship. We tend to view them as diametrically opposed or opposites because of the confrontation they had mm-hmm. when we read about this in um, uh, in Galatians, how Paul confronted Peter about a certain issue, uh, and how Paul even refers to both of them. You know, mm-hmm. he's the apostle to the Gentiles, and Peter's the apostle to the Jews. But I think, unfortunately, sometimes that create we create this division in our minds that these two guys never interacted, mm-hmm. or they never actually uh, drew from one another, and. Um, you know, I think there's, if I remember correctly, there's an interesting theory. On, I think it's from Karen Jobes, her commentary on First Peter, about how um, uh, how First Peter comes about in the Roman colonization of Asia Minor. That um, that Peter is writing to this group of Gentiles, which would have maybe have been out of place if he's the apostle to the Jews, uh, but that Pe- that Paul may have may have just passed on. He may have just been been killed. And so Peter is ministering to this Pauline congregation. Um, and so, you know, there's an interesting way to think about this, that maybe maybe there was more interaction in their ministries uh, than than we might, you know, at first expect or realize. In Bib Witherington's book, What Have They Done With Jesus?, which I reviewed on my blog this week, he does have a section where he talks about Paul and James, who are usually seen as very much opposed. And he says, if you put these two in a room... And have them discuss all the facets of Christian doctrine they could. You'd have a few times where they were shaking their heads in negative, disagreeing with each other. But most of the times, they would be nodding their heads in agreement with one another. Mm-hmm. Now, 
when you are talking about uh, Peter also, uh, one more point that does need to be brought up, I don't think you addressed this, was some people do look at how in the third chapter he talks about since the time of the apostles and such, which makes it sound like a long time has passed and people are starting to wonder about the second coming, which makes some people think, yeah, this is a late, late writing. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, Second Peter. You also have that um, <clears throat> that same, a similar comment in Jude. You know, remember what the apostles of of the Lord Jesus Christ foretold. Um, now that now that might make sense for Jude, if if, now he, if even if he is the brother of, of Jesus, uh, the the being one of the apostles, or referring back to some of this testimony. Uh, <clears throat> but in in Second Peter, uh, when we think about that that comment there mm-hmm. uh it it could be if we look at this this type of document as a last will and testament it could be peter's appeal not just to his own testimony uh but to what the other apostles have been sharing mm-hmm. it could very well be why he's he's referencing these these letters by paul he's saying look this is my last time to communicate some truth to you and some instruction don't forget everything else that has been out there so I don't I don't think the the very wording of it and the very reference uh, to that um, is something that would make us should make us think that this is much later uh, than his time frame. Uh, but the fact that he also appeals to um, the prophets, you know, the, the prophets' testimony mm-hmm. in the past and the apostles, I think it's not so much an issue of chronology. Should we question the chronology and it being late? Uh, but an issue of him trying to appeal to all of the evidence that they should be aware of in Scripture uh, and uh, from the apostolic testimony and then from himself and Paul as well. So I see it as a way of him wrapping up his argument, uh, drawing on maybe this common material about what's you know what's heresy and what the punishment is, uh, but also um, you know that they have the information they need to make this decision and to deal with this this issue of heresy in the church. And so that, that's kind of how I, I view the situation there in chapter 3. He's appealing uh, to the evidence and the testimony that, that they would have had at their disposal and lumping uh, the apostolic testimony in there as well. Now, let's move on to the pastoral epistles. And for those who don't know by this, I mean First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. Why do you think these are authentic? Okay. Yeah, Second uh second. First and Second Timothy and Titus. Mm-hmm. So you have a, um, uh, or we have an issue here, I think, of of, uh, of interpretation. Uh, one of the things that we think about with a ramification of, of viewing a document as a forgery is, okay, well, if it's a personal letter like to Timothy or to Titus, and that's who's mentioned as the intended recipient. And if this is after the life of Paul, then who might this be directed to? Are those are those individuals alive? Um, and especially if they're not, what does the church do with this information? Um, to me, it, it 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 attacks the very item of of interpretation. Well, who is this directed to if it's not directed to one of these two individuals? What about these instances of of personal co- uh, commendation? I'm sending Tychicus. Uh, I'm sending this individual, receive him in this way. Um, that's an issue I think that's at stake. Um, but when you look at why these might not be uh, pseudonymous or forgeries, um, I think I've alluded to some of this already. 
but uh, the the church structure is typically a point that's that's argued as to these might be much later than we expect. Um, the fact that in Titus he mentions early in the first chapter that um, elders were to be appointed in every town um, that to me speaks against a large scale uh, monarchical kind of organization uh, that there is this localized uh, autonomy if you will um, and also even in that, that section early on in Titus the terms bishop and elder are used interchangeably and so I don't think you can argue on one hand that the church structure would say this much later than the 60s when Paul would have died uh, I think you've got some, some internal evidence as to the fact that this might be uh, something that's uh, that's that's earlier than, than folks might give credit. Um, also, you have the same terms used in interchangeable ways in the book of Acts uh, when Luke is reporting his information. Mm-hmm. Um, on the issue of theology, uh, many would say that the writing that um, that it's portraying a f- uh, form of Gnosticism, maybe Gnosticism later on in the first century, early second century. Uh, but you know, this false teaching that he's addressing has Jewish elements as well with genealogies and other items, um, you have got here, I think, an issue not of full-fledged Gnosticism, uh, but of a very beginning uh, outworking of this, uh, various ideas and thoughts that are floating around that have not yet been formulated into a system, uh, but a proto or an incipient type of Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. Uh, you've, You've got the issue of, I think, here the book of Acts as well. And this is always a question that's brought up with the pastorals. Well, you know, Luke doesn't recount this for us. We don't know when uh, Paul wrote these. They're not mentioned. As a matter of fact, I mean, Luke doesn't mention any of Paul's uh, letter-writing endeavors in the book of Acts. We just know where he is. And so part of the view here, uh, viewpoint here has to do with, I guess, your viewpoint of Acts. When Acts, uh, when Acts ends, I guess, as far as uh, when Luke is writing this, is he recording the whole story at that time, or is he just recording where the story should end based on the fact that Paul has made it to the uh, the uttermost part of the empire and he, he's going beyond that? And so the frame, trying to fit these in the framework of Acts is difficult, especially if they came right after, you know, in the 60s. Uh, but I think when you look at the vocabulary and the style, uh, as I mentioned earlier, yes, there are some words that appear um, – only in these letters like godliness and others uh, that aren't found anywhere else. Uh, but you also have the same kind of thing taking place in the authentic Paulines like Galatians, letters you, uh, words used only a handful of times or even once. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, would, I would argue on the lines of church structure, that's not as late maybe as someone to make it. The vocabulary and style, even though they don't compute maybe with the seven authentic, when you look at Paul's letters as a whole, uh, there are there are the same issues in the uh, the authentics uh, as well, and then the the heresy and theology doesn't necessarily reflect a system that is later than the mid 60s, uh, or even in the um, even later in the first century if you want to keep it in the first century, and so um, you do find some major theological themes that are absent, but I think it's because of what he's addressing uh, these specific issues of heresy in Timothy's setting in Ephesus and then Titus's setting uh, on Crete and specific instruction, personal instruction to these individuals, these young men in the faith uh, that he's had a chance to disciple. 
And so, um, so those would, I guess, be three, uh, three main places and possibly four if you take acts as well, mm-hmm. uh, that I would, that I would approach this issue as far as, you know, yes, this, this probably is Paul who's writing these letters for us. Okay. Second Thessalonians. Okay. Uh, yeah. Second Thessalonians as well. Uh, <laughs> this is the one where you have the comment about don't be easily shaken from your composure or startled by a message that's been given as though it's been through us. You know, maybe Paul is warning them about uh, this this forgery that that's taking place. Um, one of the issues with Second Thessalonians is um, the the issue on es- eschatology. Uh, it's it's maybe seems like a very different picture from uh, from First Thessalonians, and it could be that at this point in time, their um, um, their understanding of this had changed, or someone new had introduced them to a theory about this. This man of lawlessness, or um, the, uh, the issue that I guess that's, that's pre- presented itself here with them, and so I think with with Second Thessalonians, you have uh, some clarification maybe on some of the information that we find. Um, you have some similarities as far as who is being introduced, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, um, but it, it seems that something has prompted him as well to write this. Uh, this letter, and I think when we when you get to the issue of forgery, uh, a lot of the same things apply as far as vocabulary and style. But I think the content is the issue here. Uh, the content has shifted, and um, he's warning them about people who are are uh, are idle and who are just busybodies and are causing trouble. And so I think you do have some different. Different language that's used, but it doesn't mean that it's not written by Paul. Um, you also have what I find ironic here: the the ending of Second Thessalonians, another another one of those Pauline signatures. You know, if someone was going to forge all six of these um, disputed Pauline letters, these unauthentic Pauline letters, then why not have this um, this Pauline signature in all of these? We only really find it in Second Thessalonians and in Colossians. And so to me, that, that seems to be an interesting point. Why just in those two, and why not in the other four as well? And so maybe that's a, a, a case in point in favor of, of, uh, of Paul writing this letter. Okay, since you mentioned Colossians, let's go there. Colossians. Okay. Yeah, Colossians. This is where I think whatever you decide about Ephesians is, uh, is inextricably tied to Colossians because of the similarity of material or at least the structure that they're using. And I would say, based on if you just if you start with Colossians and, and look at the relationship to Ephesians, the section I mentioned earlier in the in the, uh, in the interview about the uh, the major point of contact being that personal reference of Tychicus, then that seems to me something that a forger would not do. Why would you tie it to this uh, this individual, and why would that be the main point of contact, uh, even if you're using this same structure? And you know, with Colossians, you have um, you have some heresy that's being combated there. Uh, Christology seems to be much later, but I think with with what he's what it, what what he's debating there, with what he's trying to to counter, it doesn't necessitate that it's some form of second century Gnosticism. I think you still see some background in the culture of of, of mysticism and of magic and of some other items that are present. And so um, I don't think you, you have to go all the way to the extreme of the second century uh, to say that this is not written by Paul. I think we still have some linguistic evidence. We have some um, literary evidence as far as its connection with Ephesians uh, that would help us. Uh, 
And then you have that Pauline signature at the end of Colossians as well. Now, do you have anything with Ephesians that you would add in to this? Um, uh, yeah, I guess with Ephesians, you have one of those appeals from the New Testament to truth. You know, to put off falsehood and to speak truth. And I understand that you can see a forger using that. Um, but, you know, why? We, we see the other instances of this in Paul as well. Um, he he really hammers on the Galatian congregation for this this issue of what is truly the gospel. And so um, why mention that and why mention some of the personal details that we find in Ephesians about Paul's life as if they were currently happening? Um, and if this were by a forger, what would that communicate to an audience that is, is no longer connected to that information? Mm-hmm. And why request or urge the readers at the end of Ephesians uh, to pray for him and his needs, to pray for boldness? Um, what would you be teaching that congregation if you were someone writing this forgery, um, if you weren't Paul himself? And so I think those would be maybe a, a few things that I would add to that discussion. Okay. Well, let's uh, start uh, wrapping things up there in our final few minutes before we get to our official closing. And one question I think we need to discuss is something that was raised, I think, at the end of your talk when I was there. And when you opened this up for discussion, I was the one leading the negative charge, I think, for the most part. Someone <laughs> else was leading the positive. I'm sure you remember what I'm talking about. And that was, what if we were out digging today and we did find something such as a third Corinthians and all the New Testament scholars were lining up and saying, yep, this is Pauline. Liberal, conservative, atheist, Christian, all of them said, Pauline work right here. Do we include it in the canon? And I was the one who was saying, no, we do not include it. And someone else was saying, yes, we do include it. What's your answer? (laughs) Yeah, I might not have made my stance clear uh, since that was towards the end of the presentation. Mm -hmm. But but my position would be um, where you were, were ending up because I think we introduce so many more problems, so many more issues if we say, if we found this authentic letter and, and, and all the science and all the evidence has been weighed, and yes, this was by Paul, uh, and Ehrman and others also agreed, this is by Paul, uh, then I think if we were to allow that book into our New Testament canon as the 28th book, then we're, we're, we're breaching some boundaries, I, I think, that, that are very significant, and we're calling into question the whole issue of the canon. You know, I think what we would um, would be inferring here is that uh, what we have in our 27 current books, if we were to allow this other one in, is that what we have now is really insufficient. And I think that's a very um, a very major claim that that we would be insinuating that what what has been passed down has been insufficient, and that God is going to reveal Himself in new ways and in different ways down the road. Now, that's bef- you know we would. That's before knowing the content, I guess, of this supposedly Pauline book. Uh, let's say it, it it didn't really introduce anything new, and I don't know if it would, into our understanding of Christ and the life of the church and so forth. You know, I, I think we introduce so many more issues, and we call into question the process of canon. And I understand some of the, uh, the sympathies for maybe allowing this. Well, well, it's by Paul. You know, that was one of the early uh, issues of, you know, criteria, uh, criterion of, of whether you allow a book into the canon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, one of the other ones is, was it being used widely in the church? Right. For the history of the church, you know, the canon period being closed, you can't say that about this book. 
And, and so um, while on the one hand, I don't know if this, this supposedly you know, hypothetical Pauline book would, would introduce anything new into our understanding of God and, and of Christ and his work, um, on the other hand, I think if we did include it, we would have to go back and really look at some of these things. I think um, you know, um, Joseph Smith and his followers and everyone else who has this, this new document that's come, come out, it, it would, I think, be a revival for some of these other cults really that have, that have developed these other ways of thinking based on a, an authoritative document that's originated uh, after the time of the canon. And so like you, I as well am in that camp of, of well, we, I don't think we should include it. Because I think it really, um, it really says a lot about what we think about how God has revealed Himself, mm-hmm. and I think what we have in our 27 books is uh, the authentic revelation of God that it's sufficient, and that it's what we need to understand who He is and how the church is to live in light of Him. Yeah, I think the main point I had been stressing on was church acceptance. If this letter was lost to the early church, there's a reason they didn't deem it as worthy to be included in the canon. And we should stand by that because universal acceptance was one of the essential hallmarks of a book being accepted into the canon. That's right. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you on that. And this is also some point because Bart Ehrman, for instance, raises up the question for instance, of the Gospel of Peter and says, yeah, there was a Christian community that did accept the Gospel of Peter and he leaves out that this was never the strong leading Christian community that this is one time in one place and that as soon as it was found out what the nature of this gospel Peter was that was put to an end pretty quickly mm-hmm. so your take in on this then is that if we found a third Corinthians today I mean there's no doubt of course we should study it we should learn what we can but we could learn some things about historical Paul or the early church of a time but if we include it in the canon of Scripture, we're calling the early church into question, and we're calling the very nature of God into question in his ability to lead the church into forming the proper canon. Yes, that's right, and that's why I think it's such a significant thing. It's an important question to think about, mm-hmm. uh, but if it ever happened, uh, then I think we would be causing more, more problems and creating more issues by accepting that um, than if we didn't. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you think people should be doing now when they do come across works like Ehrman that are making any of these kinds of arguments, whether they be arguments about forgery or arguments about the deity of Christ or anything like that, since we've talked about this basically just a couple minutes here, what are some basic guidelines some people should be doing when they come across counter-arguments? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I guess for one thing, if they if they're not familiar with some of these counter arguments to Ehrman, first thing we need we need to always read, um, you know, cautiously. You know, when we come across these things, especially if if they're um, proposing one viewpoint, because there usually is a different viewpoint out there. Mm-hmm. And so, on the one hand, it, it involves us doing that hard work of doing that research. Now, um, to get to get to this information. I'll plug your blog for a moment. You come to come to deeper waters. You know you've got a, a, a wealth of information mm-hmm. on this uh, on this blog and interviewing some of these these great scholars who are out there and dealing mm-hmm. with issues. Um, and that's honestly where people probably are going to go on the first hand. They're going to go to the internet to search these things. Yeah. Um, but they have to look at look for some of these resources. I think you direct them to a lot of these resources. Um, when you you think about forgeries in particular. 
uh, there's a lot of good information out there. Uh, there's a great book that came out recently on, on a variety of apologetic topics uh, by Steve Count and Terry Wilder um, in defense of the Bible. has a lot of really good information in it. Um, Terry Wilder is the one who wrote the article on forgeries in the Bible, uh, Old and New Testament. And so uh, there, there are those resources. Uh, I would suggest searching um, um, various websites to, to see what some of the responses have been to his book. Uh, because if someone is familiar with the name Bart Ehrman and they're reading this this book mm-hmm. uh, and whatever books he's going to publish down the road or has published in the past, then there are responses. You know, there are evangelical responses, and we need to be familiar with those. You know, for the most part, uh, looking at a sampling of those is going to provide us with the sufficient evidence we need uh, to to maybe counter some of his attacks. And you know, just being mindful of of his writing style, uh, of of presenting this biased information. We need to be sure we're, we're analyzing this properly and, and finding out where he is truly being selective. And that just means doing the work of, of really researching this. Mm-hmm. And I think for those who are, are listening to this, this podcast in particular, who are leaders you know, and ministers at various congregations, in uh, taking the initiative of trying to uh, to remedy this this issue of biblical illiteracy, not just on scripture, but on some of these topics that are making their way into the media, um, and, and and topics like forged and others that are out there, we we need to to arm our people with this information and with the evidence of our of our position, and to know you know the opposing position as well. So we need to do them a service and do the church a service, you know, by making this information available. And being the leaders, I guess, in getting the word out of this information. Well, I can certainly say that when I've been listening to this, and you've mentioned books such as In Defense of the Bible, I've gone straight to Amazon and looked at it and seen what it has to say. So, yes, I'm still doing this constantly, and I appreciate the plug of Deeper Waters, of course. Uh, Dr. Langford, it's been a great discussion here, but unfortunately our time is coming to an end. If someone wants to find out more about you and what you do and such, do you have a blog or a website place they can go to? Um, you know, I haven't delved into the world of blogging or creating a website at this point, but if someone did want to get in touch with me, uh, the easiest way, the best way is by email. Um, you know, my, my email here at the college is justin.langford at lacollege.edu. Uh, but my personal email also is, is a very welcome way to, to get in touch, and that's simply langfords143 at gmail.com. Uh, those are really the best ways to get in touch with me as as uh, I don't have a blog or a website as of this point. And do you have any uh, final message you'd like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience today? Uh, just continue to do the hard work of researching and of reading. And down the road, as we reach people, um, hopefully we can instill in them a love of reading and of and of dialoguing and debating that is done in love but also done in firmness and in accountability of, of the evidence that we have. And I would just say just, just keep plugging away at this information. Uh, we are going to be bombarded in the future with other very pertinent issues. And, um, you know, like, like the early church, you know, may we just be at the forefront, you know, of, of leading the charge, you know, against some of these claims that are made, especially claims like the topic of forgery that deal with the truth of Scripture. Well. I'd like to thank you for coming on the Deeper Waters podcast today, and I hope we'll see you here again sometime. 
Thank you, Nick. It really has been a pleasure discussing this issue with you. And I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have John Walton coming back soon. He's going to be talking about his upcoming book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve. It'll be a very interesting discussion. For now, I am Nick Peters. And I'm here.